Psalm 59, Psalm 59. Uh, it is my great pleasure to uh, return and be with you. Uh, I've, I've uh, gotten to know this congregation uh, uh, over the years as a visiting pastor, especially when I was in Wichita. It wasn't too much of a drive. Uh, it's good to be with you and good to open up God's Word. And particularly uh, looking at uh, this Psalm 59, uh, this is uh, a psalm of imprecation. An imprecation is calling on God to curse someone. And that means that this is a sobering, somber topic and one that many, including Christians, avoid. Uh, in fact, I've been asked within my own congregation why we don't sing these psalms. I mean, we're psalm singers. Why don't we sing these psalms that often? And so my hope with this sermon is that we will all grow as Christians to see the place of these psalms and to grow in our love for God who gave these in his word to us. So here now as I read this psalm, Psalm 59, and I'll read the whole of this psalm. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a mictum of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Salah. Each morning they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O oh, my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O oh Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Salah. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress. 
the God who shows me steadfast love. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you know us completely. Lord, you know us as our maker, the one who has made all things. Uh, Lord, every single thing that we've ever seen, tasted, or touched is yours. And that includes even the things that we have experienced, the things that are trials for us. And you know, uh, you know those trials that we face not only as the one who sovereignly ordained them, but Lord Jesus, you know them as one who has taken on our flesh and experienced these and similar and far greater trials. So Lord, would you guide us to see your gracious provision for us in this, your word. Guide us to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, protect us and bring us through the trials we face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. They keep coming back. It could be a line from a horror film. It encapsulates the intensity, the persistence, and the resultant dread. They keep coming back. And that is, in essence, the refrain of this psalm, the repeated line that appears in two places within it. Have you ever felt that there is a particular evil or temptation or trial that keeps coming back, that stalks you, that haunts you? Perhaps there are in this congregation several who, in grappling with the enemies of Christ in the world today, have this exact dread. Well, dear brother, dear sister, this psalm is for you. God not only knows your situation and your heart, but he inspired these words thousands of years ago for your good, for your edification, for your comfort and growth in Christ. He has footsteps on which to place your feet, to walk you through, and even to sing in the midst of it. So the call to us from this psalm is, as the dogs howl, sing. As the dogs howl, sing. Now first, uh, let's talk about lamenting their howls. The psalmist wrote this psalm in what appears to be three sections. Uh, the first, the psalmist asked God to do something for him. The second, uh, one asking God to do something toward uh, the enemies. And, and third uh, is a promise, what I will do toward God. And yet these three sections are interrupted. It's as if the psalmist can't get through them without being reminded of what? Of his pursuers. Each section is punctuated, as I've mentioned, by this refrain. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling around about the city. They come back, verse 15, because they're hungry, hungry to do their evil. 
And this psalm spends a good deal of time describing these enemies and their howls. And so let's look first at them. And, and, and that'll be the bulk of, the, of our sermon, just, just looking, dealing with these enemies. Uh, and then we'll look through uh, the structure of the psalm in its three parts. So first, the, this, this long look at the enemies. And yet, even before we do so, even as we begin to do that, let's see that this is an appropriate response to evil, this looking and considering the foes we face. Sometimes we are so overwhelmed by the evil of wicked men that we avoid even speaking of them. We suppress all that inside. Uh, people ask how we're doing. We say, oh, we're, we're fine. I'm fine. Uh, we're lying through our teeth about that, but we're fine, you know. And the great danger is that we don't even feel we can bring up our troubles to God. Biblical lament frees us from such isolation. It gives us an appropriate vent. It's not mere complaining. It's not faithless, but faithfully laying the problem before the one who can do something about it. So friend, have you been going through a great trial? I know every congregation faces trials of various kinds. Surely there's many I do not know, and yet what are we to do with those trials, each and every one? Why, why would we not use this form that God has given us? Why would we not lament? It was good to hear in the, in the Sunday school this morning, of going through lamentations, realizing this is for us as Christians. Let us speak of these things as the psalmist does. Let us lay them before the Lord. And the example here is to be as descriptive as you want. The psalmist uses emotive language, not only to describe them and their character, but the specific ways that he has been hurt and afflicted by them. He describes them as, verse 2, those who work evil, bloodthirsty men. Verse 3, fierce men. Dear ones, growing up at times I was, as many are, ignorant of evil. You know, the standard American thinking. Isn't, isn't everybody basically good? I mean, even the, even the worst criminals, even the most corrupt of politicians, aren't they just trying to do what they think is good? The Bible reminds us that there is evil. That people can be given over to unnatural desires to be, as is described here, bloodthirsty. And a large aspect of this is in their words. Verse 7, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips. Verse 12, for the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, for the cursing and lies that they utter. This is why that refrain refers to them howling like dogs, or verse 15, growling if they do not get their fill. It is because of their words. And, and yet you may wonder, how, how do these fit together? How is it that these people who are lying and cursing, how can they be called bloodthirsty? Uh, swords in their lips? I mean, after all, don't you hear on playgrounds today, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. The truth is that lies kill. Again, in Lamentations 4 this morning, the, 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 the falsehoods of the, the, the seers, the falsehoods of the prophets, the falsehoods of the, of, the, of the priests leads to destruction on a people who are ignorant and turn away from God. 
But furthermore, uh, it is uh, this connection between the truth or the need to keep the truth, which actually, which actually uh, help, it, it is framed to us in, the, in what that does to people's lives. The ninth commandment did not come to us as merely you shall not lie. That's how people often summarize it. But it came to us as you shall not bear false witness. It's a courtroom scenario where one falsehood can turn a not guilty verdict into a guilty verdict. And an innocent man can hang for a crime he did not commit. Lies matter. Lies have the potential to turn the strong arm of government into a menace. Friends, this is why it is a big deal when governments or big tech suppress the truth and turn a blind eye to lies. This is why lies must be opposed with the truth. To let the lie spread and to leave, is to leave the wound untreated. Lies are intimately connected with death. And what is behind their lies, verse 12, is pride. Friends, in, in, in so much as this describes the enemies, it, it should remind us of a great foe, that one Satan. Satan fell. Why? Because he grew proud. Satan is the father of lies, and it is for that reason that he is a murderer from the beginning. And it is not just that these lies and violence are indiscriminately toward mankind. The psalmist has suffered personally. Verse 1, those who rise up against me. Verse 3, they lie in wait for my life. They stir up strife against me. And the psalmist, in regards to these attacks on him, he's, he's pleading innocence. He's not done them any wrong. He's not at fault. Which in itself only accentuates their evil. They hound the blameless. They attack the innocent. They, verse 5, treacherously plot evil. Why is it so treacherous? It's because I haven't done anything to them. Why would they treat me like this? It is for this treachery, this betrayal that they have become, verse 10, my enemies. Verse 1 as well. Who were David's enemies? Well, the inscription tells us those words inspired that are above the psalm, those are, those are also God's word. Uh, David wrote this when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. David, the psalmist, his, his enemy is actually the king of Israel. David had played the harp in Saul's palace. He had slain the giant uh, as one in Saul's army. Uh, Saul is the anointed one from whom the Spirit has, at this point, departed. This reminds us that sometimes those who most persecute the truth and persecute those who are innocent are those who are leaders in the church. In fact, how... How can you sing this psalm without thinking of him who was most betrayed by those who were leaders in the covenant community? Jesus Christ. It was those who knew the law and who professed to know God that tried to trap him in his words, sought just the opportunity to arrest him and falsely accuse him. And yet David, 
can see that it wasn't just Saul. David can see that this attack against him is bigger than him. And, and part of that is because David has been anointed as well. David is the one that, that God, that is a man after God's heart, a, a man that God will put on the throne, a prefigurement of Jesus Christ. And so David can generalize this attack against his person and, and see that it's much bigger than that. Verse 5, rouse yourself to punish not just these enemies, but he says all the nations. Verse 8, you hold all the nations in derision. You see, it's not just about David and Saul. It's about Jesus Christ and the nations raging against the Lord and his anointed. It wasn't just the Pharisees. It was that they were bringing the strong arm of the Roman government on him. That together these corrupt powers crucified our Lord. It is as the nations rage against the people of God today, they surround us as a coordinated attack. Which answers the question of, do we have enemies like these? Are there those that hate you without a cause? Are there those who are seeking your destruction? Well, dear one, if you are a Christian, the answer is yes. First Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Or as a verse that was repeated uh, in the, the, the series of sermons during our meeting of Synod, uh, preached to uh, our elders uh, by, uh, by uh, some ministers in our midst, uh, all who are godly will face persecution. Jesus himself said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so, beloved, have you lamented their growls? Have you really come to grips with the enemies of Christ, even at times those who say, would say that they're Christians? Have you suffered at their hands and not known what to do, not, not known even how to pray in such a situation. Friends, this is the psalm that God has inspired to give us that right response. To help us to walk through the life that we live where we do hear their growls. We do see them coming against the city, coming against the people of God. And as I mentioned, it has three major sections. And so we'll look at each of them, focusing on the center one when we come to it. Now first, cry to God, deliver me. Notice the verbs that the psalmist use in, in, in what he's asking of God. Verse 1, deliver me, protect me, save me. Dear ones, it is not wrong to ask God to deliver you from evil. In fact, that is part of what Jesus taught us to pray, uh, Deliver, uh, there, there really is evil and God is really able to save us from evil. Deliver us from evil, Lord. In some ways, that is a natural prayer for us to pray. For instance, when Peter was about, began to sink in the waves, he, cry, he cried, Lord, save me. And, and, and often that is a, a natural gut reaction. God, save me. Bring me out of this. It's not wrong to pray that. We're led here to pray that. 
And yet there is an element of this prayer that may not be as intuitive. Verse 4 says, Awake, come to meet me and see. Verse 5, rouse yourself. Now implied here is that sometimes we have prayed and it seems God is not answering. It seems that he is sleeping. It seems that he's far away. It seems that he can't see what's going on. This psalm teaches us to not just presume when we, when we feel that way that God won't hear. There are many people who are angry at God, and, and they might give you as their reason this. They might say, well, I tried, God. I tried praying. God didn't answer. But friend, sometimes God doesn't answer because he wants us to plead with him. He wants us to seek him more deeply than we have to that point. It is not wrong for God to do this. It is not, and most definitely not because he's actually sleeping, because he neither slumbers nor sleeps. It is not because he is far off. He is himself everywhere present. It is not because he cannot see, because he sees everything. He sees all things are laid bare before him, even the hearts of men. So why does he, he seem sometimes to be so distant so far? I believe part of it is that he wants us to wrestle with him. He wants us to be like Jacob who would not let go of God until he blessed him. And so I asked you, are there Christians today who are Jacob's? who see so greatly their need and see so so strongly the need for God himself to act, that we will plead with him. We will say, rouse yourself, O God. We will cry with great strength and even agony. Lord, deliver me. Dear one, has he brought you to the point where you know your need to pray in such a way? He might then show his great deliverance to you. The first section asks God to do something for me, deliver me. The second section asks God to do something about those enemies we've lamented. Do what to them? As I mentioned, this is an imprecatory psalm. It does call on God to judge the wicked. Verse 5, spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Verse 11, make them totter by your power. Bring them down, O Lord, our shield. Verse 13, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. Some have read or even come to the the part of singing these parts of the Psalms and said, "I, I can't sing that. Some theologians have even called these and similar Psalms devilish. They take these as examples that we should not follow, should not sing. They may even go so far as to set Scripture against Scripture, saying, well, Jesus told us to, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what then are we to make of these curses? 
Well, one thing that we are always to do when we find things in Scripture that are difficult for us to read, difficult for us to hear, and this is, this is hard, and this is what, though, what we must do. We need to lean into Scripture. We need to search these things out more clearly. We need to, to dig deeper. And this may make us for the second uncomfortable because we will need to get more deeply into this psalm, into these imprecations. What really is going on here? And when we do, we do find there is a bit of nuance. Verse 11 seems to add some contrast. It says, kill them not. Don't kill them. The psalmist can ask them to be consumed in wrath till they are no more and also kill them not. Don't kill them. Why? Well, the express reason for that kill them not is that the wicked serve a purpose. Again, verse 11, kill them not lest my people forget. So why are we afflicted by those who hate us? It is so that we, as God's people, as those serving under our king, not merely David, but under Jesus Christ, so that we would not forget. In part, so that we would not forget that they hate us because they hated him. This is not unlike Judges 3-2, where God gives a reason why the Canaanites were not destroyed, why they remained in the land and were a thorn in the side of the, uh, of the Israelites. It was so that the generations of people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Proverbs 16.4 reminds us, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. And yet there's even more nuance here than that. Verse 13, which is perhaps the crescendo of that curse, uh, for their sin, for their words, their pride, their cursing, their lies, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more, so that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. So that they may know. Is this then a curse of eternal destruction? Or is this a calamity on them that will humble them and bring them to to know, to, to repent? Well, the truth is God will do one of those two things with all of the enemies of his people, all the enemies of Christ. Either they will die in their sins and be cast with the devil and his angels into eternal fire. Or they will come to know the God of Jacob through his son, Jesus Christ, and all their rebellion and sin will have been placed on him and atoned for once for all, on the cross. This is what God has revealed he will do. And so to those who say it is wrong to sing, to pray for these things, is it wrong to ask God to do what he told us he would do? Think of the, the souls of the slain martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6. They were faithful unto death. They were righteous men made perfect. And what do they cry? They say, oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Somehow they can sinlessly cry 
those words, even with a loud voice, we are told there in Revelation 6. And that then pushes us to see two things that these imprecations do, not to the wicked, but to us as we sing them. Remember, one of the reasons behind this is so that we would not forget. There's a purpose in this for us. The first is, they remind us that, so that we would not forget what we once were. As we sing of the wicked, prowling like dogs, enemies of Christ, enemies of God's people, have we forgotten? Wasn't that us? And what did it take for God to bring us from there outside the city, prowling around, looking in to being inside the city, inside the people of God, loving Jesus Christ when we once hated him? Well, it took the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And for many of us, it took a humiliation exactly like what is asked for here. Take uh, the Apostle Paul, for example. Paul, Paul was like a dog. Acts 9, he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He had with him letters, words written in which uh, he had authority to drag them bound to their destruction. And what did Jesus do? Jesus knocked him from his horse. He blinded him and he saved his soul. How many of us can profess that is, that is what Jesus did for me? And so if there were Christians praying this psalm of imprecation against me, I praise God that what they prayed for came true. I have been humbled. I have been brought to know that the God of Jacob rules to the ends of the earth. Friends, this reminds us of what we once were. It reminds us also of what we will be, that we not forget not only what be behind, but what lay ahead. Dear ones, the saints in heaven will be perfectly righteous. And yet already, Already we are accounted righteous because Jesus' righteousness is put on our account. We receive it by faith. These psalms which push us to that point where we are uncomfortable, if we are considering ourselves in the flesh, if we are considering our own sinfulness, our own, our own failings, our own that we were the dogs, we, we, we will say, I can't sing that. But if we press on to sing this, we are pressed on into Jesus Christ. Jesus can sing these words. Jesus can sing these words without hypocrisy. Jesus can sing these words as one who could perfectly say, verse 3, for no transgression, for no sin of mine, O Lord. And so when we sing this song, it pushes us to sing it in him in union with Christ, singing in His righteousness. And that then leads us to the third and final section of this psalm. Given the constraints of time, we'll look briefly at this. But it is to sing in God's strength. The psalm rejoices in God's strength. Why wouldn't He? 
God is so strong that despite how evil and fearsome these foes seem to us, to our eyes, to our experience, God laughs at them. These are not a foe that God is going to be going to be concerned with in the sense that God is almighty. God is sovereign. And he works all details to his glorious ends. And that then frees the psalmist. It frees us. We can watch for God. We can call God our fortress. That even though these dogs keep coming back, it's not just the walls of the city. It's not just the community of Christ that is our strength. It is God himself. Listen to the confidence he has. Verse 10, my God in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Friends, this is the confidence that we have in Christ. If God did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Christ will reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And that victory of our Lord is our victory as those who are united to him. So when the dogs howl, and Christian, I, I remind you, they will. They, they are howling now. Let us, yes, lament. And yet let that lament lead us to praise. Well, that lead us to sing of God's strength. When their mouths are filled with lies and curses and threats, let us fill our mouths with the praises of God, calling on him to do that which he alone can do, humbling the proud, giving grace to the lowly, redeeming all his elect, and judging with justice at the last great day. And so as the dogs howl, let's sing. And we will sing. Let's pray first. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know the trials we go through. You know the taunts of the wicked one. Lord, you know those that arrogantly plot evil against you, against your people. And Lord, you laugh at them. Lord, you will judge justly. And Lord, what amazes us is that you would be merciful not only to them, but Lord, you have been so merciful to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for bringing us down. Thank you that you have killed us not. That we would not forget what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, be glorified. Lord, be glorified in your people. Be glorified in your Son. Lord, assure us because of what you have done for us in him. That you are our fortress. You will show us your steadfast love. Help us, guide us to sing of these things in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.